welcome you and welcome kids K through sixth grade ish to, to go down to the Mercy House Kids class. Well, this is our last Sunday with Gideon. We've spent several several weeks with Gideon in the book of Judges, partly because the writer of Judges spends a lot of ink on Gideon. He seems to be an important figure that uh, the writer wants to, to, to draw attention to. And we started off with Gideon really in misery because of the Midianite oppression. He's hiding. He's hungry. God initiates with him in that misery and calls him to repent from his idol worship. And he saves him from that idol worship. And he saves him to true worship of the one true God. And once he kind of gets that foundation laid, then he sends Gideon on a mission And that mission is to lead Israel into battle and to do that in a way that brings much glory to God and not uh, a lot of glory to Gideon and the 300 men who are part of that mission. And they, when they go against the Midianites, they're victorious to the point that Gideon is, is killing the kings of the Midianites. Like, like he, he finishes off the kings and he's a great, great victor. And I think we love that part of the story. We love when the fear-filled loser becomes a faith-filled winner. We like that story, partly because we want to be that story. We want to be the winner, and we want to be the winner, yes, in God's power, but we want to kneel in the end zone, right, and like point to God or win the World Series and point to God. Right? You know, that, that's, we like that story, and we'd like for the Gideon story to stop right there, but it doesn't. It keeps going, and it reveals some things that are, are very discouraging, and I would say they are the most depressing thing in the book of Judges, but they're not. It's going to get worse, but that's for later, and we'll look at that in a couple, a couple of, uh, uh, well, a month or so. Uh, so Judges 8.22, hopefully you've picked up a Bible off the floor or opened it up in your phone. Judges 8, verse 22, this is what happens after Gideon has his big victory. It says, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, this seems like a normal response, right? The, this guy, Gideon, he has gotten rid of the baddest guys in the neighborhood, the Midianites. And so it seems like a normal thing to want him to be king. And I think we oftentimes, we, we, we want the military hero to be our king. There's been 29 out of 45 U.S. presidents that have been um, military people, right? And so they're strong. They know how to lead others. But I think more than that, we feel like they're going to keep us safe, right? They're going to keep us safe from the bad guy. And, and so here Midian has gotten rid of the bad guys. And so they think, well, let's make Midian, uh, Gideon king and he will keep us safe from this point forward, and maybe his sons will do the same thing. The problem is Israel has never had a king, and God does not want them to have a king. He has stated it very clearly that even though the nations around them have kings, he's like, you don't have a king. I'm your king, right? God's the king, no human king. And uh, this is in part because he he also wants them to realize that it's God who's, who's saving them, right? Remember, uh, what, what he said back in Judges 7, 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. 
Right? God really wants them to understand that, that He's their king. He's their protector. He, he's their leader who's leading them uh, to victory. But of course, they're saying to Gideon, you have saved us from the hand of Midian. It's exactly what God said would happen. And even though it was 300 people with trumpets and torches that won the victory, they still are thinking, Gideon did it. That's a little window into human beings. We so quickly gravitate to other, other human beings and look to them as, as our saviors when it is God alone, it's the hand of God alone who can save us, who can deliver us. And, and Gideon's answer in Judges 8, verse 23, is a pretty good answer, right? He says, he says to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's a good answer. Like, good job, Gideon. Like, Gideon doesn't know his Bible very well. We know that. But he at least knows this much, that God does not want anyone to become a human king. And what he knows is that he wants this, this, this nation of Israel to, to be thriving, hardworking, wealthy, generous to the poor, have national security, right? And for people to look in on that country from the outside and go, how do you do it? Who is your king? And for them to say, we don't have a human king. Our king is God, right? And for the nation of Israel to point to God, to give glory to God, to not be glory absorbers, but be glory reflectors of who God truly is. So again, that would be a great end to the story, right? He's, he's victory, he has victory, and then he's humble, and he says, no, I don't want to be king, but it doesn't end there, right? Verse 24 of Judges 8 Gideon says to them, let me make a request of you, every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So the Midianites and company uh, were Ishmaelites. And we could go into that, but I'm not going down that road. Uh, They answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of the spoil and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Now, it's referring to things earlier in chapter 8 where after he killed the kings, uh, kings of Midian, uh, he took these purple garments and pendants, etc. So Gideon knows he has leverage. I mean, they're asking him to be king. So he knows he has some leverage. And so he uses his leverage to, to, to get money, to get money. And they're, they're happy to do it. And they, they bring these earrings, and it's 1,700 shekels plus all this other stuff that he got from the kings of Midian. And hard to know, you know, what carat gold is it? And I did all kinds of Googling trying to figure out how much is this 1,700 shekels. But it's around a million dollars. That's a conservative estimate million dollars worth of, of gold. And so this is not just coffee money, right? This, this is a nice financial buffer for Gideon and his family. And this is what we all want. Let's just be honest. As human beings, we just want enough money to where we don't have to worry about money, right? I just took two trips this, this past October, one uh, to Glasgow, Scotland, and one to Palm Springs, okay? Couldn't be more different. Glasgow, Scotland is this kind of blue-collar, rough-around-the-edges town. It has the worst weather in Scotland. We were there for a week visiting my daughter, and most of the time, the rain was like, you know, horizontal, blowing in your face, 
and it was about 45 degrees. And there was never a time where I was, I was walking down those streets where I thought, I wonder if God could somehow get me here in Glasgow to serve him. I never thought that. Right? <laughs> but when I was in Palm Springs, <laughs> I'm in the land of sunshine. I mean, it's 85 and sunny every time, every time you wake up. I'm, I'm thinking, wonder what the weather's like. Oh, it's the same it was yesterday, right? And it is the land of retirement. Right? It's a land of people that have done really, really well, and they put enough money in the bank that for 20, maybe more years, they can live without working. All they have to do is go out on a golf course and hit a little white ball around every day. Right? And, and there was something in me that's like, this wouldn't be too bad. Right? We, we, all, we all desire that. Right? We, we kind of hunger for that, that we could be sort of independently wealthy, not have to work, not have to worry. And so Gideon has that same desire, and he sees an opportunity, and he takes the opportunity. Now, this is a really critical moment in the, in the nation's history. This, the, the men of Israel, like not just a couple of tribes. This was all the tribes. This is a moment of, of unity. I mean, we think about that in, in, in this country here in America, to have that kind of unity. It, it seems impossible. It would be like the Republicans and Democrats coming to you and saying, what should we do to fix the country? And you say, make me rich. That's what's happening. I mean, and Gideon could have said, let's have a standing army to guard against the, the threats of those that might try to take our country. He, he could have said, let's make sure that those who are most vulnerable in our communities have their needs met. He could have said, let's chop down every idol in every little corner of this country, and let's establish the one true worship of the one true God. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He wants to serve his selfish desires. Not only does he want a lot of money, but he takes, as, as, he takes a lot of wives. He takes a, at least one concubine. He has enough sex with enough wives to have 70 sons, not to mention daughters. And so he gives in to these selfish desires of, of money and sexual pleasure. Man, some things just never change, do they? And this is what he does in this very critical moment. But, but there's, a, there's, there's a deeper issue going on here. And this is something that the book of Judges is screaming out throughout its pages. And the deeper issue is described in verse 27. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his, in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. It's, 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 it's a worship problem. It's, it's not just that he wants to, to feed his selfish desires. It's what's underneath that. The sin under the sin is false worship. Now, he builds this object of veneration. It's called an ephod here. Scholars debate as to what this is. Oftentimes, an ephod is some kind of a priestly garment, like what the high priest wears in the Old Testament. It's called an ephod. So it might have been that. It might have been something else. But, but it's some kind of object that he makes with this gold or with some of the gold, and maybe it was a way of commemorating the victory, and they were just kind of remembering, you know, like the 2004 World Series or something, like, like let's just remember how awesome it was, you know, but, but, but it became an object of worship, and I said this at the beginning of the service, that worship, it comes from this old English word, worth-ship, what you're doing when you worship something, you're ascribing worth 
to it. Ultimate worth. Right? And you're saying, this is what is most worth, worthy to me when you worship something. And you turn to that thing for help and strength and comfort and guidance. The text says it became a snare. This word snare is used earlier in the book of Judges, Judges 2, when we're kind of getting a quick overview of, the, of what the book of Judges is about. It says, the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. I think it's hearkening back to this introductory chapter 2, where it's saying these gods have become snared. Now, what's a snare? Well, a snare is a trap. Use a snare to trap an animal. There's bait in the trap. The animal thinks this is a free lunch. The animal's not going to have to work for this. He's not going to have to chase down anything. not going to have to work at this. It's a free lunch. And the animal puts its little paw or its little wing or whatever into that trap to get that free lunch. And then the trap traps the animal, right? And we say, man, animals are so stupid. Well, humans can be pretty stupid, too. They take the bait of sin. Sin is always a free lunch, we see this thing, and we think, I can have this without, without the limits, without the, the, the discipline, without the work, without the consequences. This is a free lunch. And then when we take it, we get trapped. Right? We get ensnared. The very thing that we thought was going to be something free and wonderful becomes something that is death to us. Right? We think, I can have energy without sleeping. And then I become addicted to caffeine. I think I can have good grades without studying, and then I get busted for scholastic dishonesty. I think I can have money without work, and then my $1.6 billion Mega Millions card turns out to be a 1 in 292 million chance of winning. I think I can have sex without marriage, and then I experience emotional, spiritual pain in my life and the life of my sexual partners, not to mention out-of-wedlock births, STDs, abortion, and the list, list goes on. I think I can feel good now by taking a pill, but there were 70,000 drug overdoses last year. 50,000 of those were opioid-related. When they took that first pill, they, they weren't thinking, I'm going to die, right? They were thinking, I'm going to feel good. I'm going to feel good now. It's a free lunch, and then it becomes a snare. Sin snares. We take the bait, thinking that we will not experience consequences, but more than that, we, we even when we try to go back to it, we're, we're, we're less able to say no the next time and the next and the next, and we become trapped. So, of course, Gideon was susceptible to this. He's a human being. He's a fallen human being, just like the rest of us. And so when he sees that bait, he takes it. And he's ensnared, his family's ensnared, and Israel is ensnared. Now, there's a diagnosis in the text. 
there's a diagnosis of what happened. This is interesting. Verse 33 of chapter 8 says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again. They whored after the Baals. They made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They failed to remember. That's the diagnosis in the text. After, after we see all of Gideon's story, and then we see his fall, and we see Israel's fall, and then we see the diagnosis, and the diagnosis is they did not remember, right? They failed to remember. You say, well, they failed to remember a whole lot of other things too, right? They failed to remember like right and wrong. Like the, the very next chapter, they'll be taking uh, 69 of the 70 sons of, uh, of Gideon, and they will be killing them, right? What about that, right? Does, do the Ten Commandments ring a bell, right? But that's not what the writer said. It doesn't say they, that they forgot the Ten Commandments. Obviously, they did, but they, they, they forgot the Lord. They did not remember the Lord. So the book of Judges, again, over and over and over, tells us that the root of all this bad behavior is false worship, not remembering God, not knowing God. Early in the book, again, Judges chapter 2, it, it describes what's going on in the book of Judges it says, all that, that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. That's the description of what's going on in Judges. They did not remember the Lord. Their problem is a worship problem. So how do we keep ourselves from forgetting the Lord? We see this cautionary tale of Gideon's life. It should awaken us. Wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a tendency toward forgetfulness when it comes to God. How can I remember the Lord? I'm going to give you three, three application points here. And this is not an exhaustive list, but, but here are at least a few things that might be helpful. Uh, number one, we intentionally remember the Lord by properly seeing and savoring Him. All right? We, we, we intentionally remember the Lord by properly seeing and savoring Him. I'm stealing some language from John Piper. If you've ever read any John Piper stuff, he's a pastor, uh, now a book writer, speaker. Uh, but he uses this, this phrase a lot. I, I think it's really, really helpful. He says you, you need to both see and savor God. So you need to be able to see Him. You need to see Him accurately. This is why right doctrine matters. This is why you need to read your Bible and understand your Scripture so you can see Him for who He really is. Are we ever going to have 100% accurate view? No. This is always a work in progress. We're always reading, always studying, always seeing new things, better things, clearer things. But we can see enough, right? We can see enough to accurately behold who God is really is, and when we do that, we can then savor who He really is, right? We, we can value His worth when we properly see Him. We savor Him. We usually think about savor, the word savor, when we think about food, right? We, we eat some food, and oh, it's good food, it's savory, and the Bible actually speaks about encountering God with the illustration of food, the most Famous of those scriptures, probably Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Right? Spiritual nutrition, again, I'm stealing from Piper, 
is very unlike physical nutrition. Like physical nutrition, you just need to eat food. It doesn't need to be savory. It can, it can taste bad. It can taste bland. And it will keep you alive. In fact, sometimes the foods that you need to eat are not the foods that taste all that great. Uh, I'm just, you know, let's be honest. But that's not how this works with worship. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? That as, as we see Him for who He truly is, we, we also want to savor Him, value Him, ascribe worth to Him. I mean, th- this is the, the heart of true worship. Piper says we need both light in the mind and heat in the heart to be true worshipers of God. Now, some of you major on the emotional and experiential side of worshiping God. And that is an important component of worshiping God, the experiential, the emotional side of worshiping God. It's one of the reasons I love being in a church that has a lot of young Christians, a lot of college-age students. You're fired up. You're passionate. right? And that fires me up, and that makes me more passionate. And that, 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 that's awesome. But that's one part of worshiping God, right? Now, some of you major on the intellectual side of things, right? You're like, I know my doctrine. I know what the Bible says. But your heart is cold, right? Um, That's not okay either. We We need both. We need both light in the mind and we need heat in the heart. It's funny how people relate to the worship service. Like for some people, say, what did you think of the worship service? How was it? Oh, I love the music. You know, and as the pastor, you're like, oh, great. You know, (laughs) glad you love the music, right? But then some people say, yeah, I try to to sneak in late, like after the music's kind of over because I just want to hear the sermon, thinking that that's going to make me like, oh, yeah, they really want the real stuff. No, that's not right. That's not right either. The, the partly why we're singing is like we want to engage your affections. We want to, to see heat in the heart, but we also want you to have light in the mind, right? That's right. We, when we sing those songs, those songs are theological, right? We, we, we want to have truth in those songs, but at the same time, we, we sing songs because we want to stir your affections. And so this morning, again, we're, we're doing more than a mere lecture about God, like even preaching itself. Preaching is not a lecture. Preaching should both inform the mind, but also stir the affections. And, and again, because we want, we want you to see and savor who God is. So, what do you do to, see, to intentionally see and savor? Well, you're doing it right now. Right? So this is good. Good start. You showed up at church. Right? We need this every week. Right? Our minds grow dim. Our hearts grow cold. We stumble in here. I mean, when we started the worship service, minds were pretty dim. Hearts were pretty cold. I mean, I'm just being honest. Right? Mitchell's like saying hello, and you guys are like... Right? But then after you're, you're singing, and you're lo- looking at, at what the words are saying, and, and you're engaging your heart, like it's, it's awakening you. Right? We, that's what we, we want that to happen, as we want you to have your mind enlightened as you're hearing the Scriptures, but, but also your affections stirred as you're being preached to. So Sunday morning, you're, you're showing up. Good. Number two, you want, you want to have a quiet time. 
Right? This is part of, of intentionally seeing and savoring. Right? You wake up in the morning, your heart is cold, your mind is dim. And if you just go to your phone, look at your email, look at your social media, it is not enlightening your mind. It is not awakening your heart, right? In fact, it may be dimming your mind even more and causing your heart to grow even colder. But if you open up that Bible app and you pray and say, God, would you open up my, the eyes of my heart to see in this scripture your truth and to behold you in this passage, then your, eye, your, your, your mind will be enlightened and your heart will be warmed. Small group experience. Right? This is another way to intentionally see and savor God. You walk into a small group experience, mind is dim, heart is cold. I mean, it seems like 75% of the, of the times when I'm going to a small group, I'm like, man, I don't want to do this. You need to hear that from the pastor, okay? Because you think you're different. You think, oh, I must just be a horrible sinner or, or whatever. But uh, you are a horrible sinner and so am I, all right? And so 75% of the time, I'm just like, man, I don't want to do this. But, but, but like five minutes in, I hear someone talking about the gospel, talking about what God's doing in their life. Suddenly, there's light in my mind. There's warmth in my heart. And, and then I feel compelled to say something. And as I'm saying something to someone else about the gospel, then there's light in my mind even more and more warmth in my heart. And when I leave, I go, this is great. This is amazing. But I, I needed that. Right? I needed that. I needed that small group experience. So these are ways, these are obviously not the only ways, but they're ways to intentionally remember God, to see and to savor Him. Number two, we want to remember the Lord when we help the next generation see and savor God. This is part of what we see happening in Judges, that the next generation did not get the baton passed to them. The torch wasn't passed. Again, I'll read Judges 2.10. All the generation, all that generation were gathered to their fathers... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. Now, that's an indictment against the generation that is the generation of judges, but it's also an indictment against the parents of the generation of judges. That they did not pass the baton. They did not give the Lord, help, help their kids to, to remember the Lord. And they were given strict instructions by Moses to do this. Deuteronomy 6 Verse 6 and following, all these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So that's kind of the personal remember, right? And then he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then even in the New Testament, we, we read in Ephesians 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That sounds pretty intentional, doesn't it? That sounds a little bit additional than just bring them to church. right? The very intentional kind of command that, that, that's saying your kids need to be reminded of the Lord. When you get up in the morning, when you walk along the road, when you go down at night. Mary Eberstadt, who is author and, and columnist, she speaks of what she calls the paganization of America, or we might use the word secularization. And she says that America has become more pagan or more secular because of the breakdown of the family. And she says that secularism 
is breaking down the family. It's trying to deconstruct gender, trying to deconstruct sexuality, trying to deconstruct uh, any kind of biblical or traditional idea of marriage, and the result is you blow up the family. And she says the family is the best transmission belt for religious belief. And you read like Deuteronomy 6, and I think you have to agree. God seems to think the same thing. But the best transmission belt for religious belief is the family. And so if you deconstruct the family, then you deconstruct belief in a society. And she's got a ton, ton of examples that I'm not going to go into because I don't want this sermon to be an hour long. But in light of that, I want to say to college students that are here, don't consider family just a little bit of a, like a little add-on to your hopes and dreams. Right? Like th- this is an important part for most of you. Not all of you will be married, but, but most of you will. And this is an important part of being a disciple of Jesus. Is having babies and raising those babies to love Jesus. And I know that, that sounds maybe crazy in our cultural moment, but it's all over the Scriptures. And it is a, a huge part of how belief in Jesus is transmitted. It is plan A. It is plan A. I'm telling you. Some of you that have grown up in Christian homes, and you're like, yeah, that was really boring testimony. My mom and dad told me about Jesus. I'm like, yes! Right? Honestly, you're a minority in this room. <laughs> yes! That is, that's what's supposed to happen. Right? And so as you think about your future, don't, don't just think about, oh, I'm, I'm going to you know, invent something or I'm going to make a million bucks or well, a million. That's not that much now, but, but I'm going to make a whole bunch of money, right? Think about, no, raise kids to love Jesus. You want to change the world? Try that on. Try that on. This, this, is, this is part of uh, what Eberstadt calls the counter-revolution, is, is raising these babies to love Jesus. Now, to the families who already have those babies, right? talk to your kids about Jesus. Do what Deuteronomy 6 says when you wake up in the morning. That doesn't need to be a two-hour sermon, okay? But it's just little touches over and over and over and over again. They skin their knee, and they're crying, and they're worried, and you're like, let's pray. Let's ask Jesus to give you comfort. And it's like 30 seconds over and over and over and over again. This, this is what Deuteronomy 6 is describing. And so talk to, talk to your kids about it. There's all kinds of resources, way more resources out there than when we were raising little kids. Um, we, we pass out the Jesus Storybook Bible like candy around here. I put some back there on the Bible uh, table today. If you're a parent of, of small children and you don't have that, you should pick it up. You can have it. It's our, our free gift to you. And it's just it's such a simple thing that before bed, you just you read that storybook Bible, you say a little prayer, you put them down, and, over, and what will happen is the kid will begin, they love structure, okay, and so what will happen is you'll be tired and you'll be like, yeah, let's skip the Bible thing, and then be going, nope, no, we must read the Bible and pray before we go to bed. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it is that Deuteronomy 6 kind of experience. We talk about it when we get up, when we walk along the road, when we go to bed. At night, I want to mention one more resource to parents at tinytheologians.com. I just came across this in my Instagram feed. I love this. This is awesome. Um, they have all kinds of little cards and little tools to, to teach kids about doctrine, about church history. Uh, their most recent cards are the lineage of Jesus, so preparing for Advent, 
um, and going through Advent, these, these lineage cards. So I ordered two sets of those. We're going to give those away on social media next couple of weeks. So if you, you can actually order those yourself, too. If you don't think you're going to win, uh, <clears throat> the odds are better than Mega Millions, but, you know, you, you, can, you can order them yourself. Uh, the other thing is, is to take them to church. This is one of the things my, my wife is often asked by, by my moms are like, what, what do I do to raise my kids to love Jesus? She's like, take them to church. Take them to church. And not just take them to church to consume. Take them to church to serve. Show them what it means not to be a consumer but a contributor. And to show up early and stay late and set up the chairs and break them down and clean up and pray and be in the midst of it. This is what my kids experience. And, man, it, it has shaped them. It has been such a beautiful thing to watch because they, they got there early, they stayed late, they set up, they ran the AV, they, they did all kinds of stuff as a part of being in ministry. And they love Jesus with all their heart, right? And I know that's part of it. It's part of what God used to draw them to himself was their involvement, real involvement in church. So that's, that's number two. Remember the Lord by helping our kids to see and savor God. And then number three, to remember our tendency to forget. We are prone to forget. Let's just be honest about that. As we watch the, the cautionary tale in the story of Gideon, that we, are ten, we have a tendency to be snared by sin. We oftentimes take the bait. And so if we're, we're aware of that, that our hearts, as John Calvin says, are, are, are idle factories, right? That, that we are so prone to taking the shortcut, the free lunch. And, you know, as I age, I, I just celebrated a 50th birthday last week. Oh. And what I watch in my own soul is, is again, this, this desire in my fallen soul to, to drift, right? To take the path of least resistance. This thing that happened with Gideon, it didn't happen like the week after his victory. It happened decades after the victory. He was an old man. And so he, he had made little compromises here and there, and eventually he got caught in the snare. Right? you got to know that's, that's your tendency. If you're a human being, that's your tendency because of the indwelling sin that is a result of the fall. Right? Some of you, uh, you're drifting. You know you're drifting. Your mind is dim. Your heart is not warm. And, and it's not just like a, a few moments here or there where you're dim and cold, but you know you've been dim and cold for weeks on end, months on end, maybe years for some of you on end. Awaken out of that. Right? You, you're probably in a snare like that dumb animal, and you don't know it. And so let's, let's, let's wake up to the, to the reality that we have a tendency, that we are prone to that. And so what snaps me out of that? Right, is seeing and savoring. Right, is preaching this gospel every week, reading the Bible every day, rubbing shoulders with other Christians whose minds are enlightened, whose hearts are warm. Cautionary tales like Gideon that awakens, that awakens me. Reading this passage and thinking on it this week, like, whoa, Gideon, you were like the man, like you were God's man, and then look what you did. I don't want to be that guy. Like, let those cautionary tales awaken you when you find yourself making compromises putting your hands in the snare. And as you remember that you're prone 
to, to, to forget, also know and trust in and lean into the knowledge that God is the one who keeps you by His grace. He saves you by His grace. He keeps you by His grace. There's this old hymn, Come Thou Fount, uh, written by a Baptist, uh, British Baptist pastor back in the 1700s named Robert uh, Robinson. And there's this one verse, I, I kept thinking about this verse as I was working on this text. And he, he says this, and this is not the first verse, but it's one of the verses. He says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let the, that goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You can just hear the angst in, in those lines of, of, of an honest assessment of his tendencies to wander, asking for grace that God would, would keep him. And what's interesting is what's the verse before that and what's the verse after that? Because I think this is part of how he's remembering the Lord. The verse before that says, Jesus sought me when a stranger... Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. How his kindness yet pursues me, mortal tongue can never tell. Clothed in flesh till death shall loose me, I cannot proclaim it well. He's remembering what Christ did on the cross to save him, to pour out blood on the cross to make him new and to bring him into relationship. So he's remembering that. Then the, the verse after the prone to wonder verse, he says this, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Not only does he look back at the grace that comes from the cross, he looks forward to the future grace of his salvation when he will truly see with his eyes and behold the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he kicks back and he swings forward, he's able to stand fast in the here and now where he is prone to wander. This is all, this is all our hearts. This is all our hearts. We cannot forget. We cannot forget the Lord. We remember him when we come to this table. Right? We think about Christ coming to this table with his disciples. This is such an interesting moment, right? So much going on here. And it's on the night he's being betrayed. He, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them, he says to them, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you hear it? He's saying, Don't forget. He's saying, you will be prone to forget, church. Church, you need to do this over and over and over and over and over again. You need to come to this table and break bread and take cup, and you need to remember God. And what do we need to remember about God? The cross, right? This is the blazing center right, of God is the cross, we want to see and we want to savor Him, then we need to behold Him as the crucified, risen, soon-to-return Christ. In the same way, He took the cup. After He blessed it, He gave it to them, saying, This cup 
is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He says it twice, both with the bread and with the cup. He's letting them know, you're going to be prone to forget. Church, you're going to be prone to forget. This city is filled with churches that have forgotten about the crucified Christ. They preach a nice guy Christ. They do not preach the crucified Christ. They have forgotten. They are not seeing. They are not savoring. They are not worshiping. But by God's grace, we're going to do that right here. We're going to see and we're going to savor. And what are we doing when we take bread and cup, right? You see it, right? It's something visual, but it's also something you taste, you savor. And it's a reminder that, again, not only do we want our hearts, our, not only our minds enlightened, but our hearts warmed. And as we do that through the singing, through the preaching, through the taking of the bread, the taking of the cup, we remember. So let's remember. For some of you, you're seeing Jesus for the first time. Maybe this morning. Maybe you've had conversations with friends, you've, you've read some books, you've been reading scripture, and you know this morning is the morning. And you're like, I see him, I see him. And you now savor him. You actually think he has a value, ultimate value. And so if that's where you're at for the first time this morning, receive that by faith. Ask him to come into your life, forgive you, and to become your king. And then come up and come to the king's table and see and savor who God is. For others, you're just beginning to explore this. And you know you're not a Christian. We're glad you're here. I would encourage you during this time to remain in your seat and to think about what you're hearing, pray about it. Even maybe come back and talk to me or others that will be back there for prayer. And we'd love to talk more after the service. If you've got questions that, that you want uh, answered, I would be happy to, to talk further about it. But during this time, uh, we're going to ask that, that Christ followers come to the table. So let's remember. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are beautiful. You are powerful. You are full of mercy. You are loving you are righteous, you are just, you are tender, you are gentle, you are truth. And we see that no more clearly than when we see you on the cross. And so as we take this bread and we take this cup, we, we don't want to just see and savor juice and, and, and bread. Lord, we want to see and savor you. So may you light up our minds. And warm our hearts, Lord, that we would be worshipers, true worshipers. Not just today, but tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. And may those in this room who are Christ's followers, may, may they follow you to their last breath, seeing and savoring you, God, as the one true God. And so God, bless this time as we take the bread and cup. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.